Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Eats. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast, where our goal is to become better habitat managers. I want to thank all the listeners for coming here again to listen. My name is Jared Van Heath, and I'm your host. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We have another great episode here for you tonight. We have uh, kind of a chat session. Just kind of see what's going on here in 2020 with turkey season and uh, our spring habitat projects, along with some goals. We have Brian, my co-host. We have Al James or uh, Al Tomechko, if you know his last name, and then uh, Sam Carroza. All of these guys have been on here before in other episodes, and we just wanted to catch up with them and see how everybody's turkey season went. And then we get into invasives and equip programs. We also get into what a basal bark treatment is and managing your clover food plots. We talk about exclusion fences, and then we kind of talk a little while on soybean planting, just broadcasting it towards the end. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It is another fun chat, and thank you so much, guys, uh, Al and Sam and Brian, for coming on once again. Now, for those of you who are new, we can listen to all of our podcasts on HabitatPodcast.com. We have uh, all of our episodes on there. We have a bunch of cool hats and gear up on there. We also have our land plan services on there. If you need help uh, with habitat or hunting on your piece of property, check that all out at HabitatPodcast.com. This episode here, guys, is brought to you by our friend Lincoln Rowan over at Packer Max Cultipackers. So, Lincoln came out with a Packer Max wheel kit. This will fit any four-foot uh, Packer he has, Gamekeeper Series, and allows you to flip your Cultipacker over and roll on this set of wheels so you're not rolling your drum through you know, any other things you've planted, down a road, uh, even though it'll take the beating. Uh, this is just a nice, convenient way to transport your Packer filled from uh, you know maybe your barn or your truck out to the food plot area. Uh, pretty nice rugged rubber tires on there. Lincoln's got these for sale at PackerMax.com. And uh, be sure to mention Habitat Podcast for your PackerMax discount as well. 
there was one other thing I wanted to mention. We did a pretty cool Habitat podcast trivia uh, live on Facebook the other night. You know, it was uh, about an hour long. We did it here in early May. We're going to do another one coming up in, in mid to late May, guys. So be sure to pay attention to our Facebook page and our Instagram page. So when we announce that, you can you can come on and, and try your hand at some Habitat podcast trivia regarding all things wildlife habitat. Uh, we had a bunch of great winners winning some cool prizes. Uh, thanks to Chad over at Sword and Creek Realty for doing that with me. It's a pretty fun time, guys. Can't wait to do it again. Uh, without further ado, let's uh, introduce the rest of our partners and get right into the episode. I'd like to thank the HuntWise app, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Morse Nursery, and the Habitat Hook. Now let's kick this off with Brian, Al, Sam, and myself. All right, welcome back. We have... Brian Hallbly from somewhere in Pennsylvania. Al James, our famous Amish friend from Ohio. Not really, not really. And Sam Carroza. Sam, did I say that last name right? I want to make sure I pronounce that. Yeah, Carroza. Awesome, awesome. Now, you guys have heard all of these people before. Al James has been on, I don't know, a few times. Uh, Sam's been on once or twice. Once. And yep. Once. And then uh, Brian, obviously, you hear him all the time. Sometimes. So, welcome back, guys. Thanks for having thanks. us. Yeah, thanks, buddy. You guys are probably all ready to get going since we wasted about a half hour with internet difficulties there. Yeah. No problem. All right. So I guess let's start this off. Um, just tell us where your where your properties are, where you guys do your habitat work at. Just real quick, a little bit about you. Sam, go ahead and start, and Al, you go next. Yeah, me and uh, my dad purchased about 170 acres in uh, the western portion of Illinois, so we're about seven miles from the Mississippi. Um, had that for going on eight years now, so that's where we do most of our work. I do a little bit of hunting in another county in the northwest uh, portion of the state, mostly just for shotgun season for Illinois, but... Everything else is at our home farm there. Awesome. And you were on podcast episode 26 for everybody who wants to hear about Sam and his beautiful farm. Albert. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, Albert, I've uh, been on here a couple of times. And, uh, yeah, my farm is in eastern Ohio. Uh, we started with 60 acres and uh, been fortunate enough to buy a little bit more land. So we're just about 250 now and uh been managing it for almost uh, almost 10 years now we've been uh wow. hunting that place yeah, yeah it goes by so fast so uh we can't even believe that actually me and mom and dad were talking the other morning uh they were over breakfast and you know we're like gosh it's been 10 years since we did a lot of the things that are there it's hard to believe so uh it's been a lot of fun and and uh you know my cousin killed a real good buck this past year which just kind of a cherry on top for uh, a lot of the things that we've done there from a management perspective. Very nice. Have you learned anything after 10 years? Uh, probably more than I could share in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Mr. 311. What's happening? What are you up to these days? Oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> Got the uh, 40 acres on on the market, as you guys know. 
Um, the coronavirus is keeping my agent from showing it to anybody, but I'm expecting that not to be on the market too long once this all clears up. And Working on the 311, uh, hunted it twice, drew some blood on Monday, and I ate some turkey sandwiches tonight. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, that's interesting on the the real estate. Is that just non-essential or – because you could do that six feet apart, right? Show yeah, property I, and I would think so. But being in Pennsylvania, I haven't really been keeping up with everything that's been going on in Ohio. I, I go over there and do what i got to do at my farm, but uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to be. But I figure the Constitution gives me the right to do that, so what the hell? And who's going to arrest you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And for everybody who doesn't know, Jared here, I am 15 acres in southern Michigan, and that's uh, pretty much where I do all of my habitat work and fun. Uh, my buddy did just pick up another 200-ish acres, about 45 oh. minutes from me. We've been toying around down there. Got the ranger stuck and all that good stuff, and uh, he's asked me to help him out and manage that property moving forward. So that'll be oh. fun, you know, somewhere else to get dirty and and help him learn. And so I'll probably be hearing about that in the future. You got real oh. dirty the other day. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, we uh we got out of the mud after a while, but it was uh quite the creek crossing in the ranger. Um, I was driving the Honda, my quad was east and strapped to my chest behind him. And so I got to watch the whole thing without getting too dirty, but it was fun. So, Brian, I want to hear about your turkey story first. Let's start this off by hearing about some gobbler kills here. I think uh, all three of us, Alba Albert has been lucky so far. Al, I'm sure he'll kill one soon if he cares to. But um, do you want to start her out? Yeah, sure. Uh, went last Monday. Uh, got my butt kicked. We had north winds, 30 degrees. They weren't making a sound. A couple of shock gobbles. That was about it for the morning. But, you know, hunting a new property and not knowing how the birds move and having them be quiet on top of that is next to impossible. So I went back down this Monday, same exact thing. North winds, 30-degree temperatures, quiet. I think I heard two shock gobbles. Walked around the majority of the eastern end of the property where I figured most of the birds were and from what I heard from people. So uh spent about two, three hours trying to locate something there. I saw one hen crossing the field about 7.30, quarter to 8. So I went back to the truck, and then we have a – very far southwest corner of that lease. It's kind of set apart from the rest of the farm. So I figured, well, I'll jump in the truck and take a ride over there. And just got lucky, saw a bird walking across the ridge on an open ag field and pulled the truck over, pulled up my glasses and saw it was a pretty nice gobbler. And so I went up to the far end where we have access, where there's a gate, parked the truck, hopped over the fence and I didn't get both legs over the, the fence, and that thing took off, just took flight from that ridge down because 
when I pulled up, I couldn't see him. I figured he was already down there below the tree line where I could see him. And uh, in hindsight, thinking about it now, he may have just been pitching down to that corner because it was easier to do that than to walk all the way down there. And he probably scanned that whole field visually and didn't see any hens. But I figured either way, there's a gobbler, and it's the first one I've seen there, so I'm going after him. So I dropped down into a creek bottom there below that ridge where he was walking. I gave him a couple of hen calls, and he gobbled back. He was probably maybe 100 yards, 80 yards down the creek bottom. Now, that field that I had seen him in was behind me at this point, and I figured he was going to come up the creek bottom. So I just sat there quiet. I try not to call too much because I have the tendency to overcall, so I'm real hesitant on putting too much out there for him. And then uh, about five minutes later, he ripped the one about uh, maybe 30, 40 yards from me, still on the creek bottom side. So I figured, well, he's going to keep coming up here. So I kept my back to that field and then uh, gave him just a couple of soft clucks and purrs. And he ripped one out about 20 yards. Well, now he crossed through that thicket and was back in that same field behind me. So I had to spin around on my knees, and it's like tall grass and, and briars in between me and the field, maybe five feet of it. And uh, I could just hear him that spitting and drumming. I couldn't see him. I knew he was close. I said, this is going to be up close and personal. I can't believe how fast this is happening. And just like that, here he is strutting, you know, 20 steps from me. And I put wow. the beat on him and laid him out. Wow. So he- Awesome. Well, he had no idea when you did your 180 that you know you were you were there because of all that brush. None. And wow. uh, I, I wish, in hindsight, thinking about it and how he was behaving, I wish I would have turned the camera. I had a uh, Tacticam with a head strap in my pocket. I wish I would have put that on when I turned around. I would have had time for sure. It was so thick he would have never saw me, but. Uh, I got some footage just uploaded on the YouTube channel so everybody nice. can see exactly what I'm talking about. And they go on there, but uh, caught caught the end of it flopping. And uh, I explained a little bit more in detail on the video of, of how that all went down. But, yeah, man, it's the way that property is laid out. I'm not sure if all of you guys have seen the, the layout of that, but very few houses, very unpopulated area. It, it was just very cool to hunt animals in a situation where they're just being animals. Like he wasn't worried about anything but coming to breed that hen. He wasn't pressured or, or scared or anything. He just come right in. It was it was pretty awesome. Nice, man. It's a of a bird, too. What was the beard on that thing? Ten-inch beard. We put him on a scale. He was uh, 24 pounds and a little over an uh, inch and a quarter spurs. Nice. Congrats. Yeah, Thanks. That was a huge bird. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. That's Bird. a butterball. <laughs> That's like a damn butterball, 24 pounds. <laughs> doesn't always work out like that, but, man, when they do, it's you feel like you know what the hell you're doing. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, you said you saw it out of the truck. I was waiting for a different turn of that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about 400 yards out of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> Al, normally do turkeys get that big where you're at, or no? Yeah, I think, I mean, in eastern Ohio, I think they, that's a huge bird. But, I mean, I don't think that they're overly small. To be honest with you, I don't, 
really turkey hunt. Um, like I might go once a year. It just seems like spring is just hard to get away um, mm-hmm. for me. You know, I spent a lot of my a lot of my time taking time off to deer hunt, but uh, so I don't I don't know turkeys as well. I know deer in uh, in that part of the state. Yeah, I think we all know that you know deer, and uh, and like you said, spring's very busy. We'll get into that. All of our projects we're all working on right now. Oh. Um, I know there's a bunch of them, and you got to get up at like what four in the morning every time we go chase these birds. <laughs> Yeah, and then you know it either like Brian said it works or it doesn't, and then you're tired all day and blah blah blah. But yeah, you know Sam, you got well, a couple of birds down on your property right off the bat. Open yeah, morning. Me and my dad are two for two here. So uh, I, I mean, I'm just going to say right up front, we don't consider ourselves turkey hunters. We we are hunters first, and we try and manage for deer. However, we have a great turkey farm, so uh, it's just loaded every spring. So we we've had a ball out there. Um, I went out myself the opening morning of the first shotgun season in Illinois, and I took the family up there, and it's uh, 27 degrees and 27-mile-an-hour winds. So all night I'm hearing, you know, trees hitting the windows, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go out and hunt this for turkeys. This is this is ridiculous, but I'm here, so let's do it. So I uh, went to an area that's in between two, two known roost spots and uh, set up with a jake and a hen, and sat there. I had every piece of clothing that I would wear for a late muzzleloader hunt for, for deer, but um, didn't feel like turkey season at all. I could barely hear myself think, but um, 30 minutes after after I got set up and uh, had one hen come across the field very quickly, I saw for about a minute, and about three minutes later, saw a big gobbler come out in the field from one of the roosting spots, and he came out about 120 yards, and I hit the yelp um, you know, once, and, and I heard, I see him gobble, but I can't hear him because the wind is blustering so bad at 120 wow. yards. It's crazy. So wow. he was downwind to me, so he must have heard the, the calls and everything. But, um, and, you know, it's not, there's not too much drama in this hunt. I mean, he just came right in. It was like, you know, three minutes from the time I saw him, from the time he was in our decoys. And uh, he, what was interesting is he actually passed up the hen decoy in my set and got to the Jake decoy and started charging it by the time I shot. So it was obvious he was trying to establish the pecking order there. But funny story is I shot him, he buckles, and, you know, I put my gun down. I take a minute to compose myself and everything. Get up, start walking through him, take about three steps, and the joker just gets up and runs right at me into my tree line. So I'm running back, scrambling to get my gun and take two running shots and miss, and then he finally stopped and looked at me like, what the heck was that? And I was able to put my last shell into him and finish him off. So... A little bit of a circus, you know, just to add a little bit of excitement. But uh, always bring your gun when you go up and walk up to those turkeys. <laughs> Make you look foolish otherwise. But, no, it was a good time. And then I had my, my three-and-a-half-year-old three daughter out there um, to go recover the bird with me and everything. So that was the first time she's been out there on a recovery. And, unfortunately, it was so cold, she, she stayed out there for about three minutes. But it was yeah. so fun to get her out there. So Congratulations. I thought you said there was no drama. You shot the thing four well, times. That's true. Boom, 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 boom. But uh, it, there wasn't much drama in the in the hunt. You know, I'm sitting there after I made the first shot, and I'm like, kind of feel cheated out of turkey season. I got four weeks on lockdown where I can go hunt whenever I want because yeah. you know, work has been so slow, and I'm done in 40 minutes. you got to be kidding me. So yeah. I won't complain. But um, so I went back the next week with my dad, which was a really, really special hunt for me. You know, I mean, he's the one that, you know, showed me the, the way of the woods and everything. So it was nice to kind of 
go out there and call for him and set him up and um, put him on some birds and everything. So um, much better weather. We set up in a different spot. We were hearing gobbling like crazy in the morning. And the first two hours, we just saw four single hens, which we thought was real odd and just wasn't really happening the way we wanted it to. So we got up and moved. And uh, I got to a vantage point where I can see about 350 yards, and I see a flock of 16 birds flocked together, which I've never seen before in my life. Eight of them are puffed up all at once. You know, they're doing their thing. Um, so I'm looking at my dad, and we're trying to get a game plan. How do you get close to 16 turkeys, you know? Um, so we dipped down into some CRP, uh, used topography and used some cover to get to 250 yards. And, again, that's as close as we can get. It was, it was wide open to them. Um, so we sat behind the brush pile, called, and they would all hammer back at once, which was pretty cool to see eight gobblers hammering back at you. Um, but I'm thinking there's no way you're going to break one of these off that group. So we just sit down, and I actually heard a gobble come from the other way. So I said, we got a better chance at the single one than the, the big group. So we sat down and just kind of waited them out. You know, we wanted to wait for them to go into the woods so we could maybe make a move on them. Called a little bit, but mostly we're just sitting there chatting. And um, I said, all right, well, we got to move, and let's see where the, these birds at, are at. And I look up over the brush pile. And one of the gobblers broke off and was 75 yards away, staring at it, our, our decoy, which I belly crawled into the field and put one yard into the field, you know. Um, nice. I'm just like, there's no chance this is going to work at this point, right? <laughs> so hen and this gobbler come out 75 yards, and uh, he's following that hen on a string. I think I actually called the hen in more so than the gobbler. And uh, he got to about 20 yards, and it was just such an exciting hunt. You know, he's spitting and drumming it. 20 yards and um you know my dad was just elated so it was it was a lot of good quality time with him you know i mean we we go and deer hunt together but that's where you go two separate ways and mm-hmm. you know go to your own tree stand but it was fun to hang out with him for the morning so it was a good time we had a blast congrats yeah congrats very nice yeah, congrats that's fantastic a couple yeah. nice birds too right yeah um I mean, we didn't weigh them or, you know, measure the measure the beards, but the, the one I shot was the biggest beard we've taken off the farm. Um, and my dad's was no slouch by any means. It was a big bird as well. So it was a good good start. We've, I'm going to take my one other buddy out this weekend, and he's uh, he's hearing our stories. He goes, I think I'm going to bring my bow. Like, this sounds too easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So we're bringing the tough one too, perhaps, you know, just in case that doesn't work out the first morning. But uh, see, see how it goes. We'll be out Saturday morning. Brian, you're going out as well Saturday? Yeah, Pennsylvania finally opens. We got always a late opener, so. Wow. Yeah, I'll be I'll be out. It's it's more of uh, catching up with a buddy up at his camp up in the mountains north of uh, where I'm at, like northwest PA. But uh, yeah, it's that's turkey hunting up there in the big woods, Allegheny National Forest. Is that David's place? Uh, Rogers. Roger. Don't know if I don't yeah. know. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Um, pretty exciting stuff. I, I'll tell mine real quick. It's it's nothing crazy. I went out I think three times. Opening morning was really cool. Um, the jerkies didn't cooperate. There's a ton of times on this property where I was hunting, and they all pitched down the other direction, which is normal for me in jerky hunting. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. Eventually, they come out in this field, and they either come out like 30 yards to my right or 50 yards to my left, so I'll be able to shoot. And I waited till about 8.30, and one was circling back in, and I, I called him in, and 
he saw my decoys and then went straight behind me. I'm facing the field, decoys out in front with a camera and all. And he sneaks back behind me, and I'm like on my right side, so I can't even swing to the left and shoot. And uh, ended up, I didn't think he was on film, and I was aiming down my gun left-handed, and I couldn't really get my face down on the barrel. Um, so I just, I didn't feel that comfortable with, with shooting. I'm pretty sure I would have would have hit him and and probably wrecked him at like 10 yards with that three and a half inch. But um, I just, I hesitated and he was gone. You know, it was simple as that. And so I kind of bummed. And then I, I took my girls out the next morning. Um, you know, Sam brought his daughter out and I wanted to bring mine out. And it was like 40 mile hour winds, no turkeys the whole morning. So that sucked. Yeah, snacks though, right? Yeah, with lots of snacks. You have to have snacks. It's like <laughs> it's like currency with these kids. And so we pretty much ate snacks and had a couple of deer come real close to the decoy. So that was that was pretty cool. Like you know, five yards away, and um, and they had their hats on. They were sitting there with their camo. It was pretty cool. But uh, so I went out and got real nasty for like four days, and then I went out um, on the first calm calm day. It was still cloudy. I went right back in to the same farm, but I went into the woods where they pitched down every other time. And there's like 10 gobblers sounding off like 6 a.m., like a half hour before I I heard them sounding off the last two times. And uh, so I'm like, oh, crap. And, And I get in there. I get set up about 75 yards from the roost. All I have to do is get down this hill, put my decoys, and then it's they're all right there above some uh, some flooded timber. And it's pretty open in there because of the flooded timber, so you can see everything. So I, I held back. I put a jig decoy out like Sam did and a hen. And then um, the hens were being extremely vocal, so I started to chat back with them. I'm like you, Brian. I've always overcalled and just realized that less is more. And, uh um, sure. And sure enough, all the birds pitched down towards the field, the opposite way, once again. And I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, can I make a play on them? Can I do anything? And I heard one more gobble off to my left in the woods, so I'm like, all right, you know, still have a chance. And the ten was just loud, so I kept arguing with her. I was, I was just kind of annoyed, and, and sure enough, I hear a gobble. That gobble's getting closer. I'm like, no way. It's actually working. And uh, I see, like, these tail feathers come around the corner up the trail towards me. And I flip my camera on, zoom in on him. And he's just strutted, just, you know, it's gorgeous-looking scene right there. And then he saw my decoys. And I remember, Sam, we were talking about the decoy setup, or you were on the Facebook post um, before that. And something about my Jake um, – I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that thing in the garbage because I've never called a bird in that thing. He came around the corner and he stuck his head up, went out a full strut, and just froze. I'm like, oh my god, the decoy is terrible. And by then it was too late. It was 31 yards, and I I got a good shot on him and took him out. But those decoys, it's like deer in the headlights was his look. So you I know, don't. Two years I really... ago, I, I spent a little bit more money on some decoys, and I I don't regret it at all. Um, okay, had the the just the little styrofoam ones before that looked like garbage, but uh, got a nice Jake and and had better success since then. So it might be worth the money. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think this is like a 
a flambo. It's a full body, but I don't know. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. <laughs> but it's, it's a nice bird, um, a nine-inch beard, like an inch spurs, you know, younger two-, yeah. three-year-old time or whatever. I don't know. I'm like you, Al. I'm, I'm more of a deer guy, but I like shooting turkeys in the face. That's fun, too. Yeah. So we're – we're tagged out. That's, 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 uh, turkeys. that's when I quit. There you go. I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's going down. I have no idea. You know, <laughs> I my buddy Adam shot a a bird um, like third day of season that had like a 12-inch beard and inch and three-quarter spurs, biggest thing I've ever seen. So I knew mine was like, you know, his young cousin. So yeah, that's, that's all right. <laughs> I'm happy with it. I'm going to try up that, that recipe that you cooked up, B. That looks pretty awesome. Oh, man. that I definitely recommend that. I, I couldn't stop eating it. But it's funny, though, like 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 Al, you know, I, I enjoy turkey hunting when I'm doing it, but I don't think about it when I'm not doing it. It's just I wish I could kill mature deer like I kill mature turkeys because I've killed a pile of them. But it's just I, it's fun. I like it, but I don't think about it when I'm not doing it. Yeah, passes the time, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I'm starting to get more and more into it. Um, I don't know why. It, it's it's fun, but um, probably our buddy Brent probably has something to do with that. He's pretty obsessed with it, so kind of falls with the territory. Yeah. Um, Hanbury's really getting into it. He got into it last year and killed his first bird, and that was pretty exciting to watch him go through that process, and he's pretty ate up right now. That's awesome. I think it's going to be fun for the kids, Jared, too. I mean, that's a lot better experience to bring the kids on than, you know, a deer hunt in the middle of November when it's when it's 25 degrees or whatever, you know, and you got to spray down and all that. So I'm looking forward to that once the kids get a little bit older. Yeah, Except when point, you try so. to get them up at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Could be a problem. I don't know. I peeked in the bedroom that morning, and Harper was like, hey, you go. eyes wide open. I'm like, what are you doing? Nice. Oh, let's go. So, yeah, that was great. Hopefully that is a wear off that excitement. So, yeah. Well, some good turkey stories, guys. It's a good success so far. I know uh, Jordan killed a few. We're, we're having a pretty good season. So I'd like to get somebody on here soon to actually talk about some turkey habitat. So uh, got a guy lined up um, from the NWTF. So <laughs> the listeners can tune in a couple episodes from now and, We'll talk turkey. Very cool. Yeah. That's exciting. Lamest pun ever. Anyways. Al, what have you been doing habitat-wise the last, I don't know, month and a half? Spring habitat projects. I want to hear what you all are up to, what's on your docket, what you've been doing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I've been really trying to do is, I actually take a step back. Um, sometimes I think with habitat a lot, you know, less is more and getting a better understanding of uh, your native browse, I think is something that's so easily overlooked and also plant identification. So like Dr. Craig Harper <clears throat> talks a lot about like, you know, you have to know 10 plants that uh, you should be able to identify. And uh, I actually got a good, good friend of mine, bought me a plant ID book for Eastern United States um, and tree ID as well. And then, uh, like I told you, 
and, and Brian, you know, Google Lens, if you buy, download the Google app, you can take pictures and then essentially it just searches Google for those images and it'll um, give you a good idea. So like, if you, let's say you're like, oh, I think that's an oak, but I'm not sure. You can take a picture and it'll say chestnut, swamp oak, white oak, et cetera. Well, then you can go to a plant ID book, cross-reference that, and you'll know exactly what damn oak it is. Um, so I've been really focusing on identifying pockets of strong native uh, plants on my on our on our farm there, um, and also trying to identify um, the browse levels within that um, within that area. So some of the things that I've noticed, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of that has to do with us not shooting shooting as many does as we probably should. But you know, I noticed a lot of um, blackberry brambles and multiflora rose, which is an invasive, and things of that nature that are really heavily browsed. So Honestly, that's just like observations. Um, that's been a big part of our plans this year. I mean, after doing this for 10 years, we have most of our food plots laid out. Um, we take soil samples, we amend the soil, but stepping back and doing the observations at kind of a macro, macro level, just, you know, you're not paying attention to every single branch, but just walking the farm, just looking and looking and looking and even driving the roads and looking, oh man, there's an olive that's you know, an invasive growing on a roadside ditch half a mile from the farm and it's browsed to hell. Like that tells you right there, like why is that? Well, most likely, especially in a heavily wooded area, that you have a situation where your deer density is either too high or you don't have enough forage or both. Um, so that's been something I've been really, really heavily focused on. And then also um, trying to get into an NRCS equip contract. Um, so the funding for that comes in july so we should know if we're going to be accepted um so that's treating a lot of invasives nice. yeah yeah it's been cool man treating a lot of invasives um atlantis with tree of heaven um autumn olive um let's see if there's any others that come to mind i mean those are the two biggest on, on, my, on my property i have a little bit of honeysuckle um but treating those or at least coming up with a plan to treat those um and set those back to eventually do a timber harvest on, you know, select areas of the farm over the next couple of years. Okay. Is that the equip, like what Jason's doing to uh, eradicate invasives on his farm? That same type of thing? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So you get funding, um, you go in, you can hire a crew to come in and do it, or you can do it yourself. Um, and they give you funding per acre depending on the density of the invasive species and also the topography of the area that needs traded. So if you're a level five, then it's X dollars per acre. If it's a level three, because it's flat and it's easier to treat, it's you know Y dollars per acre, et cetera. Um, so they kind of assess it. And then if you get funding, um, you, know, you can either hire people or do it yourself. And how does that work with the topography? So based on the topography, it can make it more difficult to treat. So if it's very steep and, you know, most of the time, a lot of invasive species are species of the edge, um, at least in my experience. I'm sure there's going to be somebody who corrects me, but um, in a lot of times in my experience, autumn olive, uh, bush honeysuckle, and tree of heaven grow on edges. So edge of a field, edge of an old pasture, edge of a pasture that you created because there was a food plot, et cetera. Uh, power line easement is another really common one. So what happens is if you have a very steep topography there and then you have a whole bunch of trees growing up on the side of that, well, then you also have blackberry brambles. It's just difficult to treat versus if it's a totally flat field or 
you know, a 10-acre flat field of mud of olives, that's easy to treat. Got a, you know, mulching head on a skid steer, take a half hour, you know, and then just spray the stops, you're done. Um, so that's going to get a hell of a lot less funding per acre than, say, like my property that has some pretty steep terrain. Okay, so that person comes out and kind of grades your property and gives you a quote, per se, or how does that work? Yeah, it's a state forester, at least in Ohio it is. Um, so you have a state forester that comes out. So in my situation, we have a um, private forester that will actually handle uh, timber harvest. So they will mark the trees. They will make sure that we get three to four quotes, you know, make sure that they're reputable, That's what I did. Yeah. Um, and then you can, then what happens with them is they'll look at uh, this gentleman's plan over here, who's the private forester, and the state forester will say, yeah, you know, I agree. I, most of them know each other. I mean, it's a small community, and they know the ones who are good or bad or, you know, whatnot, but they'll come in and say, yeah, I agree with so-and-so's plan, and here's exactly how I would draw it up. This 11-acre piece here is where you have your most invasives. This area here is a chestnut oak ridge that's being dominated by beach in the understory, so you really should do a mid-level treatment there of, you know, Tordon or whatever the, the treatment is that they suggest. Actually, it's Garlon, not Tordon, excuse me. Uh, but those are the things that they can really do, and it's very, very, very much done on a micro level. So, like, on my farm, we focused on, I think that plan covered less than 60 acres. Oh, wow. So we really broke it down. Now, every time you want to do an NRCS contract, you can get as, as many as you want. Like when I met with the gentleman, he said there's some people who have 30, 40 contracts because they've acquired more and more and more land and they've just continued to re-enroll. Um, so it's not like you have – because that can be overwhelming, right? If you're like, holy cow, I, I bought 200 acres like your buddy. It's brand new. You're looking at this, and now you're like, i got to enroll 200 acres. i got to walk this all with this. You don't have to, at least in Ohio. Um, you don't have to do it all at once. You can do sections. Um, which is like a much more pragmatic approach, I think, to removing yeah. invasives. Well, to everything. I mean, yeah, you know, just compartmentalization of your property. But if you can break it down one one bite at a time, you know, off the elephant or, mm -hmm. or however you want to say it, yeah, that's that's pretty neat. I didn't realize they do it just on a, a smaller portion of your farm like that for 60 acres or so versus the whole thing. I think it was a whole thing. Yeah, no, it's it, it, it makes you feel like, Okay, take a deep breath. I can handle this. Like at first, I'm like, oh, there's no freaking way. Like we're hiring it out. Like you know, if we have to pay a little out of pocket, because there's no way. Like I'd have to take three weeks off of work trading base. Well, then you break it down. You're like, oh, so of the 60 acres, this smaller subset of that property is 10 acres that we need to treat for invasives. You know what I mean? Like so, you're not. It's it's just so much more um, or less overwhelming. And if you're like, holy cow, i got to treat 200 acres of invasives, there's no, right. for, forget it, I'll just deer hunt, you know. Yeah. And that's the problem, <laughs> I think, is that that's, that's a much easier reaction than actually figuring it out. And they're government agencies, so let's be realistic. They're not the easiest to deal with. We've been very fortunate and blessed that uh, the state forester we had was awesome, as well as the gentleman at the NRCS office. Like, I mean, he was just a really laid-back guy, super helpful. Um, so we were really, really fortunate in that way. That's awesome. So when are you going to begin? Are you still negotiating, or how does that work well, out? So I've been spraying. I think I showed you guys last year. Like, I, I'm, i like, 
pretty into killing invasive trees. It's like one of my favorite things to do. But I don't know why, but you just spray them with <laughs> either hack and squirt or, or basil bark or foliage. Kind of like shooting the turkey in the face. It's satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I probably should spend more time. Maybe I, I'd stop killing so many invasive trees, but I'm happy with the invasive treatment. And, um, you know, one of the things is, <clears throat> so, I, so I carry around a uh, spray bottle in the four-wheeler with me at all times. But um, one of the things that I'll do is if I see an invasive, I'll spray it just as I go. So I've always been doing that and setting them back. But the actual contract time comes up in about July is when they'll start going out and telling you, yeah, you, you're going to get credit. I don't know, unfortunately, this year because of the coronavirus, um, if any of those funds will be pulled back from a government perspective or not. Um, sometimes the way the government works, just from my knowledge of, dealing with the government a little bit in my actual career. Um, when funds are allocated, they're allocated. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that that's the situation. But I don't know for sure um, if because of this you know, global pandemic, if they won't pull some funds back, and that'll be mean less people in July will actually get funding to go ahead and pursue these contracts. So hoping that everything goes well, and then in July we'll get the green light to either do it ourselves or to hire people. And I think it's like a two or three year contract. Uh, I'd have to look back at my notes, but uh, it's not like you have to start immediately, but then you start implementing that plan. Okay. Awesome. That's pretty cool. I don't know if we have that for autumn olive up here in Michigan. I'm sure we, I'm sure we do. Um, I know some guys like their autumn olive. Some guys like to kill it like Al and uh, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Most guys uh, here hanging over the fireplace, Al uh, has autumn olive branches. <laughs> I was just going to say, instead of all the turkey beers, he takes a little <laughs> sliver of every autumn olive trunk and stacks it up on top of his mantle. Free of heaven also. I've been Free there. I've seen what he does to those things. Free of heaven's worse. That, that mm-hmm. tree, that is a bastard of a tree. And um, that was, again, a situation of people saying, oh, it's great. It's great. It's, it's up there with the Bradford pear. You know, put it in your yard. I have two in my yard. It wasn't my choice, but they're there. Oh, I'd be spraying them. I'd be spraying them. There's no doubt. I go on walks with my wife. He can't handle it. I'm like, I want to spray every one of these trees at night. I'm coming back. Crazy. 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 Oh, man. Oh, so one more question on um, you and your invasive murdering, which I love. Um, it takes dedication. It takes time. You're taking time away from turkey hunting or food blotting or anything else. So I do appreciate it. Um, what do you carry around that spray bottle? So uh, I'm probably going to butcher the names, but uh, Triclofleur or Triclofor, um, which is Garlon 3, and I believe that's right because there's Garlon 4, which is ground active, Garlon 3, which is not. Triclofleur is the generic name. Um, and depending on what you're spraying, there's a few different – uh, mix is recommended. So I actually mix uh, a little bit of diesel fuel uh, in there, which acts as a, as a permeating oil. Uh, and then also you can, I put in a little bit of glyphosate as well. Um, so it's about a 50-50 mix, but then obviously put a little bit less diesel fuel if I'm adding the glyphosate. So like autumn olive, if you're going to spray that for foliar spray, um, typically people will spray uh, like triclosate or just a small amount of that, and then they'll put in glyphosate. But if you're doing uh, a basal bark treatment, it'll be mostly triclopyr and uh, just diesel fuel. Uh, so it kind of depends because each herbicide works differently. Triclopyr works through woody brows and stems, and then obviously glyphosate works through 
you know, it gets on the green leaves and then through photosynthesis comes through the plant. So um, I mix them a little bit and then also using that diesel fuel and it seems to torch them pretty good. Nice. So, yeah, I've been really happy with the results. And I do hack and squirt too sometimes. Um, I've had kind of mixed feedback on that if it's necessary or not. Um, but if I'm using a backpack spray, you can just basil bark spray a tree and it's pretty easy to get, you know, two foot all the way around. But if you're going to do a, um, if you're just carrying a squirt bottle and you're kind of running on the, on the fly like I am sometimes, oh shoot, there's an automolic. Well, I'll just get down underneath it, hit it with a sharp hatchet that I keep in the four wheeler and then just spray that right in and it just torches it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that basil bark, are you, Explain that to everybody so we know exactly what that is. Yeah, so there's a lot of information on this from a lot of people, hell of a lot smarter than I am. But um, like Ohio State has uh, extension, has a bunch of write-ups on it. And what it essentially is is just spraying the bark. And you'll spray like a two-foot swath all the way around the tree. Um, and that will – so it, the, the theory behind it is when you hit a tree that um, has a propensity or is invasive, or it has the propensity to become invasive, and you hit it with a hatchet to hack and squirt, which, like, man always likes to be able to be like, let's stick this hatchet, <laughs> right? That's got to work better. Amen. Right? Because, yeah, I mean, you, you want to add human value to the tree, but it's, it's not quite the same, you know? So what happens with the tree is when you hack it, it can send a response into, especially Tree of Heaven, where it says, okay, I got attacked. What's going on? Where the big issue with Tree of Heaven is not killing the single tree, but killing the root system within that tree. So if you hack and squirt them, uh, one of the fears is that that root system will then shoot up 10x, 100x, you know, more sprouts. Whereas if you simply uh, basil treat that tree, so spraying all the way around the tree's uh, bark, it will slowly absorb and it's kind of like a sneak attack. Um, so again, there's a lot of, I mean, there's PhDs written on this stuff, but that's the way it has been explained to me and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I appreciate the explanation there. I know you're a pretty analytical guy, so I figured have you run through that there and, and those, uh, herbicide recommendations are, are pretty awesome too. I should carry a spray bottle. Um, I sell spray bottles pretty much for a living, so I could get one and I could just hang <laughs> it on the quad. Yeah. And uh, I might kill an automata for you and send you a picture. That'd be Please do. They're, they're getting big. They're, I've noticed um, from year, well, 17 when I bought the place till now, they've shot up like probably 50% in, in height at least, you know. So they're they're moving. And uh, it's just, I think that's my only, my only issue out there uh, in terms of invasives. But Sam, you have any invasives on your place that you – tackle or take care of bush running suckle or anything like that you know i I haven't tackled taking any out um you know i don't think we get much out olives down here i I, uh haven't seen any um we do have a lot of cedars that move through and i know that's been a topic of discussion i i I personally like the cedars you know so um i don't know if we'd consider that as invasive as, as some of the stuff that al's talking about but i have not tackled it at all to be honest so yeah well at least the cedar is native i think that's something that gets confused often is the terminology between invasive and um, non-native invasive and that's i mean it's a fine line but there is a line there and like cedar that a lot of folks talk about i mean cedar is a a native tree 
to the eastern United States. But because we don't have fire anymore that goes through the eastern United States through natural occurrences because we've broken up the land, it can become invasive. But uh, it all, the only reason I would be worried about cedar is if I, I like apple trees and cedar apple rust, right? Mm-hmm. That would be my biggest my biggest fear, as long as you don't see it overtaking your CRP field or something of, of that nature. But um, that's the difference. Like Tree of Heaven is from Asia. You know, it's a long way from Eastern United States. So it's choking things out like cedars and white oaks and, um, you know, areas where ragweed should be growing or things like that. So um, just to make that clear, like a lot of times I see people on the Internet confuse those two between non-native invasives or native plants that can become invasive. Even grapevine, even standard native grapevine, foresters typically suggest that you cut them. And the biggest reason is because they can have an invasive like attribute to them, um, but they're a native tree. And most of the time in most woodlots, they're not overly invasive. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Brian, you doing any invasive tackling either on the uh, 40 or the, the 311 anytime soon? Or, or what are you looking at for projects right about now? Yeah, I've got some buckthorn uh, up on the 40. I had the uh, Ohio biologist out in my place when I first bought it. He wasn't overly concerned about it, but he said keep an eye on it. You know, as you as you do edge feathering, like Al said, you know you're you're clearing canopy, and that's some of the fastest and most aggressive stuff that comes up. So I always keep a backpack sprayer full of uh, glyphosate in there. It does a pretty good job on the foliar side of it. So I'll just knock some of that back when I see it just to keep it under control. But I don't have anything that, you know, I have to battle around the clock. As far as um, the 311 goes, I haven't seen any major problems there yet. I'm still getting to learn the property. But, uh, you know, being a, a cattle, working cattle farm, it's a lot of pasture up to a hard edge of timber. So um, we don't really have the the uh, edge feathering going on there like we do on our own properties. Interesting. And what are you looking to do on the 311, you know, coming up here in the next couple months? Are you doing any spring plots or anything like that? Well, we frost-feeded some of the old plots that the guys have put in over the years. Being my first year there, there's not a whole lot that I've dived into yet, but uh, we've got Two new plots to the uh, north, I guess it would be the northeast section. There's going to be one there and then one kind of midway on the property on the eastern side also. Uh, Just a couple of corners where the pasture fences don't go all the way to the woods. We're allowed to till that up or spray it and throw and grow or whatever we're going to do. But uh, not having any big plans for corn or anything. Might, Might try some beans. I just got the uh, killer food plots soil test results back, so we're going to amend that. Actually, they're all pretty good. I think they're all over six except for ones like a 5.9, which, you know, I'm not going to complain about. So won't have to spend a ton of money on lime and fertilizer this year, thankfully. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I I still have to finish my, my soil test up. I know, Al, you got all yours done. How many did you end up doing? Uh, 10 or 11 so far, 10 or 11 so far. Nice. So, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to, 
uh, you know, record year after year and, and kind of see if anything's changing, if you know what the hell you're doing or not. And? <laughs> well, it seems like it's heading in the right direction. You know, we've uh, we've kept a lot of stuff in clover. Um, so we haven't really killed very much at all. Um, it's also been interesting to, to kind of take Dr. Craig Harper's uh, suggestions and, and we've let our clover plots go in the summertime and have not seen any decrease in usage, um, you know, and just kind of let the tonnage go until maybe like August we'll mow it and then we'll oversee with rye and uh, some brassicas and, you know, the brassica and radish will they never get as good as if you killed it and everything because it's turning into a bed of clover. But uh, we've done that. And honestly, the OM levels for this, for the part of the state that I'm in, Eastern Ohio, uh, they've increased year over year. And it's, it's been really, really awesome. So, Al, have you seen any weeds move in and a lot more weed competition move in going that route uh, long term? I mean, are you losing clover stands after two or three years? The weeds are not much of an issue. No, I mean, it hasn't been really too big of an issue. I mean, there's definitely weeds. I mean, there's yeah. uh, yellow rocket and, and things like that, but it hasn't been too bad of an issue. A lot of the weeds, honestly, that I've seen grow are like ragweed. You know, the edge of the plot are like, yeah, they're surrounded with ragweed. And it's like, well, okay, I'm good with that. It's 18% protein. Bag, you know, how expensive a bag of Roundup Ready soybeans are? I mean, it's like, I'll just let them eat ragweed. Yeah. And, and so for me, um, no, we, I mean, but I'm not overly concerned about springtime plots. Um, now, if it was in the fall, like going right into winter, I'd probably be more concerned with mowing them and, and spraying them. But in the wintertime, there's some weeds there, but I'm not losing clover plots to weeds. Okay. How about grasses? I noticed I walked mine the other day. Um, one of them that I kind of let go after we talked with Dr. Craig Harper, and I'm seeing a lot of cool season grasses trying to take over. Um, and I really haven't touched it, so I probably got to go spray uh, with some cleth or, or something like that. But how about grasses? Are you guys managing any of your clover plots for those? Or I know Jordan does a lot of that in Illinois. Yeah, the worst grass I've had is um, actually not a grass, but it's sedge, um, which that's a son of a gun. But uh, oh, yeah. I just have sprayed that, honestly. Strong glyphosate mix with AMS, and it roasts it. People are like, oh, it'll, it won't die of glyphosate. No, it does have nodules underneath the dirt or something, so supposedly it'll come back, um, like in its root system. But uh, that's been our biggest battle, spot spraying that. Is there some ryegrass or, you know, other meadow grass and things like that? And Oh, sure. I mean, I'm sure there is, but not enough to get me concerned about it. Um, I think that's one of the things that I've changed drastically from 10 years ago is I don't worry as much about a couple weeds in a food plot you know i used to be like it's got to look perfect and and stuff like that so um sedge worries me a little bit because it seems to grow rapidly and, and spread pretty quickly it's tougher to kill um and i might spray cleft once every two years or something but uh overall i think that rye helps too you know it has that what is the allopathic um trait that helps to suppress the weeds you know mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of study i think uh university of iowa has a pretty good, um, I don't know if it's peer-reviewed research or whatnot, but I've read it before. It's like in PDF format on, if you Google that. And it's uh, it's pretty interesting to hear some of the results that they've seen. It's primarily focused on agriculture, but it's still interesting to hear how rye can suppress certain types of weeds. 
Very nice. How long are you guys getting your getting out of your cloverplast these days? I mean, do we all have cloverplast in right now? I know. Sam, do you? I got to reestablish some this year because uh, okay. that's why I asked Al. Is I had I had a beautiful clover plot that was tucked up in the woods, and for three years it was beautiful, maybe even four years. But I was mowing it every year, and I decided to let it go one year, and it you know was the fourth or fifth year, so it was about due anyways. But I think I just completely lost it to weeds. It was probably a combination of two things: the end of its cycle and and just the weeds overtaken. So um, it's hard to say what was at fault there. But were you were you frost seeding um, in between it all or no? I did once or twice. Yeah, I, I don't recall the exact timeline. Um, mm-hmm. Again, the original plot went in seven years ago, and I'm sure I frost seeded once or twice in between. But last year I let it go all the way. You know, I let it go completely, and uh, I don't think it paid off. So that's why I'm. Mm-hmm. Just curious, but got to reestablish them this fall. I'm going to plant some um, winter wheat with clover and chicory mixed in, and, and go back and uh, you know mow down the winter wheat after you know maybe July of next year or something like that. So we'll get back. That sounds after. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's great fawning cover. You know, you you uh, you look at it letting rye and or winter wheat or um, you know get hell it'll get four or five foot tall in yeah. the spring. If you can wait, which is hard because who doesn't like getting on a tractor and running a bush hog? <laughs> it's it's like American as apple pie, right? But I mean, at the end of the day, like if you can wait, I've literally had trail camera pictures. I'll send them to you if I have. You, you guys have probably seen every picture I've ever had ever, but I'll send them to you because I mean, I have fawns that are you know knee high to a grasshopper. They're so damn small, and the mom's right there, and you can barely see the fawn's back at the top of that clover and rye sticking up in between and it's like man that deer can lay down eat chew its cud and get out of there from any direction it's in the middle of the field they can run any direction being a clear-cut thicket and all i had to do was not fire up the tractor yeah yeah right i mean it's pretty cool you know and i didn't come up with that crap like guys are a hell of a lot smarter like than me you know, Dr. Craig Harper and stuff, but when you sit back and watch it and put a trail camera over, it's like, damn, that's pretty neat. Like, all I have to do is not do anything, sit on the porch, listen to, you know, Mark Chestnut and drink cold beer. Now you're this talking. Is easy. <laughs> I'm like, this is easy. You know, well, no, I, in all honesty, we've, we've been blown away with some of those um, success. I mean, that's a success to me as a habitat manager. Yeah. I mean, I hate to keep bringing up Dr. Craig Harper, but who better to reference, right? Um, but in his For book, sure. yeah, I mean, he brings up the fact that if you if you plant with the the winter wheat, as opposed to winter rye, even there it is. There you go. I've got my copy upstairs. But um, you know, I used to be a winter rye guy, and he says that uh, you know winter wheat grows four or five feet tall, as opposed to seven foot tall the next summer. So you can get yourself a nice summer plot out of going with the winter wheat and just leaving it sit you know and then go back in mm-hmm. in july august or whenever it's it's done its job and, and mow it down you should have a you know lush carpet of clover there afterwards you know winter wheat only grows four or five feet so it's a little bit more manageable deer can yeah. get to it so no that's awesome so now, what's, the, what's the attractiveness um from winter wheat versus cereal rye any idea so they think it's sweeter now yeah i think it's sweeter on par, so so what's him <laughs> They said it's on par. They said oats okay. is a little bit higher, but um, doesn't have some of the good qualities of, you know, staying power beyond the next year. So, 
he, he said winter wheat's the way to go. So I'm I'm gonna believe, yeah. I'm gonna believe that man until uh till the day I die. So Yeah, I think winter um or oats will typically you kinda have a freeze off or a kill off from the winter. Uh but the one thing that I struggled with is uh, I think it can be regional, depending too, like on how the previous year's seed crop uh, was harvested. Because sometimes I'll see where winter wheat's available and winter rye not, or vice versa. Uh, I don't know if you all have ever experienced that, but like sometimes if I sure. call a, a, a co-op, I'm like, "Hey, do you have winter rye?" They're like, "Winter wheat." I'm like, "Well, what do you have?" You know, and. Sometimes they have some stupid name for it that they put on there, and then you have to yeah. try to figure it out. But I've had where they don't have both options. Correct. Um, now, maybe something like Welters out of Iowa, you could call them, and they probably have both. The bigger places do. Yeah, yeah, Ernst, yeah. Ernst always has both. But, yeah, I've run I've run into that same problem with the smaller co-ops for sure. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's interesting, too, is the uh, weather and the climate every year. Like, since I bought my 40 in 2013, we've set records for the wettest spring, I think, five years in a row. And it's just been a nightmare every spring dealing with any type of broad leaves, grass, whatever you don't want. It's It's been a nightmare. I, I think you guys saw that alfalfa that I shared the other day. I haven't touched that yet. It looks like I sprayed it already. Man. We, we've had a normal spring. It hasn't been too wet because we didn't have the – the heavy snows, we didn't have the melt and, and the stuff being underwater like it always is. But uh, it's just nice to see a normal weather pattern and, and seeing things doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, because you've been battling the grasses and your clover and everything. Last Amen, year, bro. especially that wet spring. I remember you talking oh, about that Outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah, Al, or... Uh, yeah, I think it was Ali, your point. Um, I've not been able to find winter wheat around me every now and then. Um, rye has been limited, but I seem to find a few bags of that. Um, I just didn't know if there's any different attractiveness to, to one or the other. Or Sergius always plants that buckwheat, you know. Um, the, so I don't know. I mean, I like to use the rye and then even like the packermatics, I like rolling it over when it's four or five feet tall, and then your clover just shoots right up through that, and you can get all that dead thatch in there. Same as mowing, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. You're just managing that rye. I think but. the winter wheat's a little sweeter than the uh, winter wheat's a little sweeter than the rye, I think, awesome. from what I remember hearing. I'll have to check that out. But it's a trade-off with the rye because, obviously, you get the, the properties of the rye that suppress the weeds, so it's – I, I, I like to plant both if I can get my hands on it because I'm a, you know, diversity type guy. I like to have a little bit of everything, but, you know. Every grain that I can plant, I think, like, that is similar. Oats or winter wheat. I think one year I did all three. Winter wheat, oats, and rye um, together, especially in small little food plots that are more like kill plots. And right. uh, it'll grow on the bumper of a pickup truck. And then the stuff grows anywhere. And you can just throw it down. It's it's just it's easy to plant. I mean, if you're trying to do a small throwing girl plot, like guys want, would you like to try to plant soybeans? It's like it's a sixteenth of an acre, probably not, you know. But you could spray it with glyphosate and use oats and rye grain and winter wheat, and you're going to have a green freaking carpet, and deer are going to hammer it. You know, I, I just I love I love planting those, and I like throwing uh some brassicas in the mix as well on, on bigger fields. 
And um, that, that's what I'm absolutely in love with that Roundup Ready Alfalfa. I mean, I I know you know we talk a lot about herbicide and trying to limit it and trying to do more no-till and stuff, but something to be said to having a beautiful carpet of alfalfa that you can just run once or twice with a sprayer and don't even have to worry about it. And the deer are in it all the way up through the rut. So, Brian, you don't have to cut that at all three times this summer or anything? Like? I mow it, yeah. Okay. Definitely have to mow it. Uh, if, you, if you've got a higher deer density, I've heard guys saying that, that they'll keep it pretty nice and low for you, but I have to mow mine. But it's it's definitely one of the higher attractive plots on my farm that deer are in consistently all the way up through beginning of November for sure. It's expensive to plant. It's real expensive seed, but, you know, it's one and done. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So I know in Michigan, they, they hammer that alfalfa. I mean, September, you want to go glass, and you find an alfalfa field for sure. Probably even early October while it's still nice. Um, so that's pretty cool. You're doing such a great job with that. Pays off. Definitely most of the fields out west that you see on television, isn't it? Is it when you're watching so. guys in Wyoming and stuff? Isn't, aren't they hunting big alfalfa? Oh, yeah. Auto? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never been out there. I've been out west, but not out to, like, Wyoming and things. And I always thought that was big alfalfa fields. And those have, like, 200 deer in those fields. It's amazing. For sure. They love it. Yeah. And it can obviously withstand browse pressure. I mean, with that type of density. I mean, it's a lot of acreage plants, too. But, um, yeah, I have a little bit. I put exclusion fences up, and it's mixed in with the clover. And uh, you wouldn't find it if it wasn't for those exclusion fences. Because then you can actually see, like, holy cow, it's missing from the field. But it's it's inside the exclusion fence because the deer seek it out. I'm writing that down because I need to put those out this year. Oh yeah, that's a absolutely that was a big one on my list this year was making sure I had one in every field. So just one every field right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And what's that going to show if if people are not familiar with what, with what that is? Uh, in the simplest terms, browse pressure. I mean, it shows you uh, whatever's in the fence is uh, not accessible to deer. You should make sure you use a cage that's small enough so a groundhog or rabbit can't get into it. That's one thing. Like, don't use big welded wire with huge holes in it because groundhog is going to get in there anyways. Uh, but, yeah, it just shows you the browse pressures. You can look, okay, here's an acre field, and there's five feet missing, and life, which isn't uncommon uh, for smaller food plots if you plant soybeans. But if you didn't have that cage, you'd be like, yeah, I see some brows, especially with the forage soybean, where it continues to grow. You'd be like, ah, I see some brows, but it's hard to distinguish how much brows is occurring. But if you have a uh, exclusion fence up, oh, boy, it, it really tells a story. And clovers are even more difficult. Unless you're getting down on your hands and knees and studying, it's very hard to see if the deer are browsing it. Or if you have a camera up that shows it's taking a 1,000 pictures a day. But, I mean, it's very difficult to tell, in my opinion, um, unless you have an exclusion fence. So that's what it helps. And people think that they have a crop failure a lot of times, too, and it's just browse pressure because they don't have an exclusion cage, and they come in and say, hey, I did what you told me to do. I planted all this, but nothing came up. I'll throw up an exclusion cage, and you know, a lot of times it tells a different story. Oh, that's 100% accurate. I had a small food pot this past year planting in brassicas, and I, for the life of me, would have thought, oh, it just it failed. I don't know what happened. I mean, I haven't had a plot fail in a long time. I don't know what happened. And uh, I had an exclusion fence up, and it told the whole story. I mean, those tops inside that exclusion fence are two foot high. 
everything <laughs> out of there was down to the ground. It was a small food plot, but I didn't think that the deer density at that time was high enough to eliminate it to that point. No, I totally agree. I mean, my oats and peas plot every year, I rotate that with a Nebraska plot, and they're both a fairway, you know, when when you're done. So if I actually fenced that and saw, you know, I don't know, 18, 24-inch brassicas or whatever um, that were untouched, you could actually really see how much tonnage you're, you're feeding. Or if you have a dough factory or whatever, you know, issue you might have there. And I kind of want to get into spring plots, uh, if you guys are doing any, if that leads to a, a doe factory situation like we were talking about via text uh, yesterday. Um, I think that'd be a good a good subject to get into next. And I mean, for my opinion, just time alone, I've, I've been only doing fall plots. And uh, there are not a ton of deer in my area during the summer. There's probably one or two doe families fawning, you know, like like you said, Al, and that tall rye. They're in there, um, but that's it. There's no bucks. There's a couple deer, and that's it. So I'm able to screw around all summer, shoot guns. I don't do that very much, but other, you know, whatever, screw around. And then come fall, usually like mid-October, I start getting nice bucks moving in, and they are not there before that. Um so I'm not going to probably screw with that. I'm probably going to keep doing it that way. Like, what, what are you guys doing for spring plots? Sam, I know you know you, you had the question. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's two separate issues. I mean, I, I am taking the plunge this year and for the first time trying spring plots. And same thing as you, it's just been a matter of time. And, you know, when it's April and I say, tell the wife I'm going to the farm to go plant food plots, she looks at me like I'm crazy. She thinks this, this is off season. It's time to spend time with the family. But It's not only me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, during lockdown here where, you know, I'm, I'm barely working at this point, I, I'm figure I got the time. Let's do it. So I, I bought the Packer Max. I'm going to put um, one and a quarter acres of soybeans in. So it's going to be small fields. There's two fields. One's about – 0.9 acres, you know, there's 0.3 acres. So we're going to see how this goes. I'm definitely going to try exclusion cages to see how how, uh, how this works out. But in the past, and some too, if you can. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get get to that. But uh, in the past, I've just relied on our local farmer who who rents our uh, tillable out, and you know, he's farming 2,000 acres. The last thing he's really worried about is getting my deer plots in. And so right. first it works great. You know, I'd say three out of seven years I've owned the place. It's been phenomenal. You know, I recall, uh, a, you know, it's a one-acre plot. And I remember my dad and I went out to a blind in um, early January, and we, we sat there. And from the time we sat down with snow on the ground, snow falling, it was 10 degrees, deer in the plot. We ended up seeing 45 deer that night. It was unbelievable wow. in one acre. Wow. So. Um, that's also the plot another time where I shot my biggest buck during muzzleloader season. So when it works, it works. You know, it's worth it when you when you have the only beans standing in town. But that's true. Um, I've had too many years where you know he he plants early July right before a drought, and it just those those beans just don't compete with the weeds. So I I said I got the time. I'm gonna buy a pack for Max. I'm gonna disc it up. I'm gonna uh, you know plant. I'm gonna cult a pack and do the whole nine yards and see how this works. So it's going to be an experiment. I, you know, it's in a, it's in an area that keeps a lot of deer pressure. So we're going to, we're going to see how this works, but I will definitely keep you guys updated. So now what's your seed rate and are you just going to broadcast and then roll them in? 
Yeah, so I'm going to broadcast uh, disc in and then cult of pack over. Gotcha. Um, I believe the normal rate, and I, I bought the real world seeds just because I, I was recommended that because yeah. uh, hopefully they're a little bit more persistent, you know, and, and yeah. continue to grow. We'll see. May have gotten taken with cleaners on that. We'll see. But uh, um, no, you'll be happy with those. Yeah, yeah I, I planted them. They're very good. Very good seeds. Good. Um, so we'll we'll see how it goes. I mean. Uh, they're Roundup ready, so, you know, you can go in there a little bit later and, and take care of some weeds if that becomes an issue. But I'm also going to plant a little bit of buckwheat with it, and hopefully that will take some of the pressure off early on. Yeah. Um, again, that was another Greg Harper special. So so we'll see how this goes. I mean, uh, the best part about it is if it fails, it'll be ready for fall food plots, you know. Bingo. All I lost was a couple hours on the tractor and, and 150 bucks a seed, so... Um, getting back to seed rate, I did buy two two bags, 100 pounds for 1.2 acres, which is a, is pretty heavy. But with broadcast and with with the deer density there, I don't think I'll be too sorry about that. So yeah, you'll be good there. Yeah. So we'll see. To to be determined. Nice. And Al, you broadcasted beans a few times, right? Oh yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of times. Very, I've done it with corn too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, really good success. Are you adjusting it in too, or? I've done it both ways. So I've, um, in the past, it's been a while. I think I killed it, and then I just packed it, um, and then got rain pretty timely. And it was beautiful. You tilled the beans in, or you just tilled it, broadcast, and packed? Yeah, just, yep, just tilled it, broadcast, and packed. And then uh, another time I uh, tilled them in, you know, so I actually tilled it, seeded, tilled again, then packed, I didn't notice any huge difference in, um, you know, seed survival or anything like that. That's good to know. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good to know. I wanted to cover that in case anybody's thinking about trying that. I've been thinking about it for a while. I do know if you go back and disc it in, you just want to do a light disc. You don't want to go and rip up the ground like crazy. You know, you're looking for one-inch seed depth, so. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, it's a uh, catch-22 with these spring and summer plots because we, we want the the late-season attraction with the standing beans and the standing corn. But a lot of times you find yourself, especially with soybeans, Jesus, doe family groups just move in and just suck up all the bedding around everything and just put so much pressure on those bucks. So it's, 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 it's a tough call because, you know, like I said, it's hard to beat those standing beans in late season. Yeah, that's the other part we wanted to cover here. Are you guys dealing with a ton of does, Brian, Al, Sam? I mean, I kind of explained that. I, I'm really not yet, but I haven't done the beans. Um, you know, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, like we were talking about in the text messages, that group text we have going earlier, I think what I've seen on my property is kind of like an old farm that was sort of let go and, and those bucks got real comfortable and there wasn't as much food around for the does to be stacking on. And early on, I seemed to get a lot more buck pictures and a lot more buck activity. And then the more time I spent going in there with the tractor and putting in food plots different places and making more food and more, you know, early successional growth with the edge feathering and and making more doe bedding, they sort of just came in and took over. And, And we all know as mature bucks, they're not going to put up with that very long between the, the dough pressure 
and the pressure that we're putting on it with having the tractor in there all the time and spraying and planting and, you know, maintaining and everything else. I, I, I sort of, I think I've, I, I wouldn't say I've totally hurt my place, you know, completely, but I think that's definitely had an effect on it and, and I've increased the dough numbers exponentially for sure. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I've noticed over the seven years that, you know, the more habitat improvements I've made brings in more does, and I've seen less mature bucks, um, which is a hard pill to swallow because I absolutely love doing habitat improvements. I mean, that's just as much as hunting, you know, just as much fun as hunting for me. So it's Amen. it's tricky. I mean, you know, it goes goes back to, like, passion versus discipline. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about getting out there, but maybe I need to be a little bit more disciplined. This is me, as I'm saying, I'm going to put spring food plots in and go plant 20 more trees this weekend. You know, it's it's really hard to hit the pause button, but, um, you know, maybe we need to, you know, I've thought about rededicating some more area to sanctuary and killing more does to try and kind of reverse this process, this slippery slope that I feel like we're on a little bit. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a work in progress, I guess. Yeah, I was just going to ask what you guys feel the the solution to that may be. I mean, staying out of the property is one thing, but if the does are already in there and putting pressure on the bedding areas, um, what are you guys' thoughts on trying to curb that? You start hammering some does or what? Yeah, I um, I'll jump in if it's all right. Um, yeah. So I have a little bit of a different thought. Is I sometimes when I an- analyze you know, habitat management and hunting, I think that we like to put them in the same breath. But I sometimes I think that they're polars. And what I mean by that is, you know, you'll hear somebody say, well, I don't want to cut or uh, kill an automobile thicket because that's my cover. Well, that's true from a hunting perspective. But from a management, management of habitat perspective, that's not the right thing to do. You know, so I think that when you're talking about doe numbers, um, well, you have to have a plan, number one. So if your plan is simply to see a lot of deer, spring food plots probably make a lot of sense. Um, but you also have to do the things to consider, like, well, what are the reasonings for this? Because you're probably not going to see a big buck in standing beans until late season. So if you're planting, you know, two acres of standing beans, it's like if you notice Sam's approach was extremely pragmatic. He had identified the reason for planting beans, why he was planting beans. He had data proved the reason for planting beans was because I've harvested mature bucks in this area before. He didn't say, well, I'm planting two acres of beans. I think I'm going to put 30 inches of antler on a deer's head, right? So in my opinion, like you have to have clear goals to identify that backed by a plan. So if you're going to say, you know, all right, I want to plant beans in this case because I want to harvest deer late winter. Well, then I think you do need to be very proactive and shoot does if the property is showing signs of that early season. And that's a pain in the ass because it's 75 degrees in September and October. But I think that to sit back and go, um, and I, I see this a lot, and I don't want to get down this rabbit hole, but I see a lot of guys go, well, I'm going to plant an acre of beans because I'm going to add nutrition to my deer herd. You'd be better off just having to become native ragweed and stuff probably than planting an acre of beans, disturbing all of this, if that's truly your goal. I mean, you can become, um, you know, quixotic with your goals when you're trying to say, like, 
I have two acres to plant, and I'm going to do this for deer's nutrition, specifically the spring plots or summer plots. So my thought is you have to identify why you're doing these food plots, and if you're going to do it to draw in more deer, which that's kind of like the baseline for most people, is like I want to see more deer, but then you have to have a plan after that. You can't just stop there and go, all right, well, I, and I made this mistake. Like this is like literally preaching to the choir because we used to not see very many deer. Like when we bought our place, I mean, we would see two or three does. It was closed canopy forest. Um, if you saw three deer in a sit, you were like, oh, that was awesome. What we also didn't do is take into consideration uh, how the topography broke up different deer pockets. Like sometimes we'll see now on camera where four or five does come in, they leave, and an hour later, two does come in. And they leave, and 45 minutes later, three does come in, you know, and cellular cameras have made that helpful because you can monitor three different food plots at one time. And you're like, okay, it's 5 o'clock, and I have 13 different does on this piece of property. So really monitoring things like that. And when I walked through, I was disappointed with myself this year when I walked my property and looked at blackberry brambles that are thick as my pinky, and I got fat pinkies. Uh, I broke them actually playing baseball when I was a kid. And they're as thick as my pinky and they're browsed that down that far. So yeah, I think that if you're going to do things, um, to increase the deer on your property, well, then you also have to be willing to shoot deer. And that doesn't mean just like, oh, I shot two does. I mean, you might have to really put some effort into that, um, which we discussed. I mean, that can be a lot of work. I know it is for us. And that's the another problem is, you know, when do you shoot those does? Do you shoot them first week of October when you're trying to stay out of your sanctuaries? Where do those does run? Right in the sanctuary. And you just undid all the work you've, you know, you've stayed out for two months prior, and now you're chasing and dragging does out of there. It's like it's a no-win mm-hmm. situation, you know. And, uh, that's that's where I stopped shooting does the last couple of years because I didn't want mess, to mess things up as much, you know. So it's, it's a catch-22, like you said. Yeah, and the other thing I, I think, too, is uh, we talked about earlier uh, over the text messages about some of the DNRs, they're, they're trying to do the best they can with managing deer, you know, for hunters, hunter satisfaction, and they're doing it by counties or they're doing it by management units, and it's just not working for individual property owners, you know. Where my farm is, I can shoot three deer. That That's one buck if I choose to and two does, or I could shoot three does if I wanted to, but three deer total, that's all I get. And and to try to get enough people to come up there and just shoot does, it's, it's just not going to happen. Now, I understand there's some places around the country where you can work with the DNR and they'll give you special tags and things like that, and maybe maybe that's something that we should all look into. But, again, like uh, we're talking about, it's just it becomes a time and, uh, you know, resource problem you know we have enough time and enough uh energy to get to get it done by ourselves yeah i mean i think it still goes back to like the basis of all of this is you know carrying capacity of the land which is how good is your habitat so you know if you're able to have like i think sanctuary is a word that's thrown around a lot like what is the ideal sanctuary is it big open or closed canopy oak oak flats that we just say, well, hey, we're not going to walk in there ever. Now, there's no human intrusion, but are deer going to bed there? Probably not, because coyote's still going to be an issue. Bobcat's still going to be an issue. Um, 
you know, so I think that's something too that gets thrown around a lot. And by having the best habitat around, you know, which sometimes you have to remove cover to create better cover in the case of autobolids or Atlantis or bush honeysuckle or something like that. But again, I think that's where there's a huge difference between managing for habitat and just hunting strategy. And we continue as hunters to want to put this all in the same breath. And it's like unbelievable because you look at like any Facebook post, a guy talks about his bow and they'll quantify it down to how heavy the broadhead is. It's 150 grain. It flies 353 feet per second, not 350, 353 feet per second. But yet I've never been able to see anybody quantify, well, how much close canopy is Automolive taking up per year <clears throat> that's limiting fawn and fawn bedding. Yeah, no, I and think I, those are great points. I mean, by, like what, keep going. Well, I just want to say by by being able to quantify some of these things, I think that more hunters would realize that you know instead of just focusing on a, a spring food plot or worrying about too many deer or uh, whatever whatever issue they might or not enough deer, they'd be building overall better habitat that could in turn hold more deer and you know and by that i mean increase carrying capacity not hold more deer and they're going to stay on your property forever that's another topic for another day but um i think that those are some of the things that sometimes get uh, i don't know, misconstrued but they just all seem to blend together it's like hunting is this huge umbrella topic and everything that falls underneath it is is one and i just don't see that as is the case no i i think you brought up a few good points there and i think what I guess our niche is, or what we like to talk about, is hunting and habitat being one in together. Um, and I know they're two different things, but we like to pair them very close together. Um, like, for instance, Brian, that, that land plan we're working on in Kentucky with Ty down there, we're recommending a, like, what's that, maybe a eight, eight, seven, eight acre sanctuary. Um, and it's covered up in, in mature canopy and bush honeysuckle. And uh, the cover, you walk through there, he took a video for us, it's thick. You think that's great, right? It's like the autumn olive. Um, we're actually recommending to remove yeah. that BH and let the native browse come up, along with removing the mature canopy and just making that, I guess you would say, pound for pound, better native, high-quality forage, along with not going in there to your oak flat point. Right, so there, I think there, I think there, there can be some synergies between the two, and I guess the way we always relate it back is making your property the best to hunt, while also giving you the best, the best habitat or tonnage per acre or whatever that sanctuary needs, whether it's not going in there, water pressure, whatever. But um, yeah, no, that's an awesome point. I think the my fine line for sure. Yeah, I think my biggest point on it is is not to discourage people from building habitat changes because I would probably recommend the same thing that, that you're looking at. But I think it is to be realistic that you might cut that bush honeysuckle or kill that bush honeysuckle that first year and they might call you, Jared, and go, what in the world? This is wide, wide open. open. Yeah. Well, that's because you know how long it took for those plants to establish? I, I mean, we, we as hunters, we want it to be overnight. And from a habitat, hunting is very, very quick. Once, once it happens, you pull the trigger, the buck's dead. 
you know, and it's like, but habitat, I plant a white oak, I might see that thing drop an acorn in my lifetime if I'm lucky. Right. So I just think that sometimes these people tend to, and I used to be this way, I put even a food plot. Guys put in the food plot first year, they think that every deer in the county is going to pile into that thing. They don't even know what the hell it is. And I I know I dealt with that. I planted food plots. I'm like, where, where are the deer at? You know, I'm supposed to be like a jewelry brother here. I planted a sweet food plot. Like, this is going to be easy. And they don't come into it. And everybody wonders why. Well, they don't even, they might not know what that crop is. They might not know what that area is. They're not familiar with that given area. pH can be off. Soil sentimented. Exactly. It takes time. So um, I think that that's something that needs to be realized by people is if you're going to dive into this lifestyle, which I tell everybody to do, it's the best addiction I've ever had in my life, you know. Um, but you can't think that you're going to do a change one year and you're going to have some unbelievable impact on your local deer herd because you put in a quarter acre food plot or you did a half acre hinge cut. I mean, I do a lot of those things. I love it. But you have to be just realistic, I think, with those um, expectations. Now, in three years, four years, you might be really, really happy with those results. I guess that's my point. It's not saying not to do them. Just be realistic in the time that it takes. Yeah, for sure. And, and everything's so fluid. I mean, we're all we're all in different situations. You know, you, you might have a guy that is fortunate to come into a piece of property in his 20s, and he's got more long time long-term goals that he can accomplish. Or you got a guy that maybe doesn't come into that piece of property until retirement when he's 50, 60, whatever it is. Yeah. And he, he's got some, you know, he's got less time on his side. So it's always that fluid, fine line. And, you know, we talk a lot about this one-size-fits-all thing that never works for anybody. And that that's that's the fine line we're all walking here and trying to figure out what's best for each situation and each piece of property. And it's, it's a lot to juggle. It's not easy. Yeah. And I think Al, you've mentioned before, you know, one tree at a time, one acre at a time, one project at a time. I think that's a good perspective that we have to take is, you know, we talked earlier and I said, I've, I've got 20 trees coming. What, what realistically what is 20 trees going to do? You know, I mean, in the big scheme of things, when you're, when these deer are living on a thousand acres, what is 20 trees going to do? Well, you know, pile that on 10 years, it's over, and, you know, you hope in 10, 12 years you got a nice thicket or you got a nice orchard or whatever it is, and, you know, it's going to be a draw. It's not going to, you know, like you said, it's not going to put on antler uh, inches on the antlers, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's it's going to help a little bit. It's a building block. That's what I that's what I think of. So. Oh, yeah, and I hope that I didn't come across as somebody who's anti that. I just think that it's – No, not no, at all. Not, not at all. He, being realistic in your goals, I mean, to me, like, I know I'm weird because, like, hunting is very self-fulfilling and it's very much an ego boost. Like, let's be realistic. Like, if I kill a big buck, it's going to feel good to post it on Facebook. It's going to feel good to brag around town. When I plant a white oak that I know hopefully my kids or grandkids might know it's shade, that takes on a whole deeper meaning in my perspective. Right, like if I plant a field of buckwheat, not because deer might use it, but because I'm trying to help pollinators out, that takes on a whole different meaning than just the 30 seconds that people like my picture on Facebook because I killed a buck. And I'm nuts about big deer. I'm, I'm not trying to. I just think I try to look at things from a little bit of a different perspective. And when you're managing habitat, um, I think it's important to take, take those things into consideration. You know, plant a white oak. 
yeah, it's going to take a son of a bitch of a long time to grow, but plant the white oak because the sawtooth is is not a it, 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 it's not a native tree. Plant the white oak, let the white oak grow, and forget that you even planted it. You know, and and do some of those things, and then also do do the things that you know you have fun with the the soybean plots and all that stuff. Because I do that as well. But I just think people need to take some of those other things into you know consideration and, and the time it takes to really see you know a deer mature. Mature deer in most parts of this country is four years old. So if you bought a property tomorrow and you're going to grow a big deer, it's going to take you at least four years, assuming that he lives his whole life on your property, right? That's a good point. Good way to look at it. But I think I think we can do it all. I, I think if people really sit back and do it the right way, I think you can you can make a good effort. Of course, you can't do it 100% all great. But I think we could want to shoot the big buck and want to post our picture on Facebook and celebrate that and still plant the white oak and, and get that going. You know, I, I think – I think it's all achievable. I don't. I don't think we have to pick one or the other. But that that's always the tough balance. Like I said, it's a fine line, and and we always have to be checking ourselves. And that's why we're all having this conversation right now. Yeah, I think that's the hope, right? I mean, is to learn from so many people who are so much smarter than than well, I won't say all of us, but myself. You oh, know, definitely you read, me. You you know, you read San County Almanac, or you read Dr. Craig Harper's book, and. Um, the relationship with nature was so strong and the ability to, to, I mean, you know, although Leopold saw huge bucks in his lifetime and certain of it, just by some of his writings, you know, uh, saw, or look, go back to Simon Kenton back in the 1800s, saw a huge buck drinking out of a creek and there was nothing being done other than native habitat. And I love planting food plots. I'm obsessed with it. I'm not trying to talk people out of it, but I just see so much stuff on social media that is missing the point, you know, like, and if you just take a step back, there's so many resources out there. You guys do a hell of a good job. And the, the number of guests that you have from diversified backgrounds, um, you don't even have to read. Just sit here and listen to people and you learn so much and have a different perspective. And I know, I wish I would have heard this conversation 10 years ago. Amen. Because it, it would have changed the way I manage my farm tremendously. I would have been less selfish about, I don't want to shoot does because I'm scared I'm going to put pressure on my farm to push a deer, you know, a buck to my neighbor, which, I mean, I'm going to be realistic. Man, that's a selfish attitude that I've had, and I still fight that. Um, I think I'd have shot, you know, shot more does and done things that would have better the local habitat um, on my property. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to get better at that over the next, you know, several years. You know what's cool, though, after having this conversation here, I think um, we all start at, you know, a certain point. It's like the five stages of deer hunting, right? You start out trying to just shoot a deer, or maybe that's trying to just plant a food plot, because that's what you hear about all the time. And then you start thinking about managing your forests and and bases and doe harvest, etc. I think it's just a, a stage that people go through that we are going through now um that we all maybe wish we would have gone through earlier but it's i mean i just applaud anybody listening getting out there and doing it if you, yeah. the only way to learn is to do it you know plant a food plot watch it fail learn what you did wrong and and 
better it up. Um, you know, watch the deer. Watch how they walk through the thickets and not through the wide open forest. And, uh, you know, a light might go off. And you know, things like that. We're, we're just, we're all learning and, and getting through it. And I think you guys have some awesome, awesome knowledge and, and conversation on this podcast here. I, uh, I'm hoping Sam has the, the solution to the, the dough factory problem just all written down, ready to go, right? Yeah, don't hold your breath on that one. But uh, <laughs> we'll see how these soybeans work. That's not going to help the, the dough factory problem by any means. But, you know, it might even hurt. I don't know. But, um, you know, there's there's some, some ideas rolling around my head. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's a, it's a constant battle. It's an evolution of thought process. It's an evolution of strategy. It's an evolution of our own selves is what, what we're looking to get out of this. But I mean, at the end of the day, we all want to be holding that, you know, 160 inch deer. So that's, uh, that's the, that's the goal, I guess, you know, and I, I fight myself dealing with, you know, seeing what everyone else is doing on social media and comparing myself to what they're doing. And that's, yeah. that's something I just need to put in the rear view mirror because it doesn't matter, you know. And, oh, it's human nature. It's going to happen. You just have to balance it. Yep. Well, and, and you can't, you know, chain a deer to the tree and just to get your Facebook shot. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, no, nobody Brent, wants that either. No, my, my buddy Brent's been trying that for years. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I think I think you guys have some awesome uh, knowledge and information out of here, and especially on some things to look into for the future. I want to wrap this up with, like, one or two things you're going to do this year that you haven't been doing. Like, Al, you mentioned, you know, I should have shot more does over the years and not worried about my neighbors, but, you know, pushing a buck out. I've, I've been saying that in my head, the, the the part about not shooting and keeping the does for the bucks. I've been doing that forever. Totally um, my thought process. But now I'm starting to realize a big mature doe kick a buck right out of the area if uh, she's – you know, the queen be there. So I'm just curious to what else you guys might have on the docket for this year. Just maybe one quick thing you want to, you want to make sure you, you know, you, you do this year for your property. Yeah. I mean, I'll start off here. Um, I think it's just all come down to me being a little bit more disciplined hunter. Uh, two years ago, we made a decision to try and smartly hunt the budding areas and the sanctuaries a little bit more to get, get into those areas and, you know, the first year I, I shot the eight-pointer that we did the, the last uh, podcast about. And since that time, I feel like our, our um, you know, trail cam pictures of five-and-a-half, six-and-a-half-year-old bucks has gone uh, gone down. And that's really the only thing I can attribute it to is, is just that increased pressure. And, you know, everybody you've had on the podcast recently is intrusion, intrusion, intrusion. And these, these big old bucks just will not tolerate that happening. And, you know um, – even if you don't see it happen, and I'll give you an example of one time where I did see it happen. There was a, a eight-point buck last year on our farm that we got maybe 10 or 12 pictures of during the summer, and he looked like a big body but not much of a rack. And first time in October, I saw him in our uh, main food plot. Um, you know, he fed through the food plot beautifully, gave me a shot. I passed on him, uh, gave him 20 minutes to get out of there after dark, sat in my blind for 20 minutes, and I walked out, and he was sure enough he was sitting in a bean field about 50 yards out of my exit. I must have snuck on him, snuck up on him too well. He busted out like crazy, and we did not get another trail cam picture of that deer the rest of the year. Wow. So that, uh, that's something where I did see it happen, but who knows how many bucks came through my tra- scent trail afterwards, had the same experience, jumped out of their skin, and we didn't see it. You know, I mean, that really showed me. I was like, 
whoa, yeah, he's he's out of here. So that was proof was in the pudding. So I mean, unfortunately, the answer is to not hunt as much, but that's no fun either. So got to find ways to do it do it smartly, wiser. Very true, Brian. What do you got? Well, Jared, you know this, but uh, I don't think Al and Sam know what's going on with uh, Kansas. I'm pretty excited to I put in for the non-resident draw out there and completely unhabitat related, but hunting related. And we'll see if I get a, get a draw on Unit 15. Uh, buddy, buddy of mine's been going out there uh, last couple of years. He's killed some really, really stud bucks out there. So just from that standpoint, pretty excited. Back to the habitat side of things, I'm uh, going to pay a little more attention to what the deer are telling me. I've, I've gotten a bad habit of putting and and doing different habitat projects that I want to do and, and not so much what the deer are telling me, hey, this is this is what we need, what we don't need, this is what we're using, this is what we're not using. Especially on the 311, I'm being very careful with how we jump into this. I mean, these guys are putting a lot of faith in me, you know, bringing me on. They're, they don't know too much about food plots. So they're, they they brought me on to kind of manage all this. And, you know, over, over the whole farm, I mean, our piece is 311, but the whole farm is 1,500 acres. They shot a 160 and two 150s last year. And plenty more where that came from on the cameras and I'm just I'm just trying to be a lot smarter about how we're going to approach this cuz I don't want to screw any of that up. I mean it's 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 a great property as it sits and I want to enhance it and not and uh do anything to hurt it. So how are you going to going to do that? Are you going to sit back year 1 and and kind of watch or you have guys who've been hunting it so you're going off their knowledge or what are your thoughts on that? Just curious. Yeah, I mean, all the above what you're saying there. I, I've talked to the guys that have been hunting it and what they've been seeing. Um, the, the movement through the property seems to be pretty consistent in, in, in the same areas. So I think the, the couple of plots that we're going to do now, we're, we're not getting crazy. We're going to enhance one that was already there, and we're going to add two to two other spots in different places on the farm that I don't think are going to hurt anything. I, th- I think it's going to be a, an enhancement. So we're going to take baby steps and just add a little bit, watch, add a little bit, watch, and, and, and kind of see what happens. Nice. nice. Albert, what you got? What's on the DACA for this, this year? What do you want to see? different what are you paying attention to what's your goal yeah um if you couldn't tell from my ramblings earlier i don't know i i i want to uh i mean from a habitat perspective we have a couple new food plots that we will be uh we'll be getting something planted most likely fall food plots turnips and radish uh, probably rye or winter wheat um, or oats or something like that over top of those so we're going to be adding some more food to help the native um, forage and we're going to shoot some does and uh, you know for me um, I really am trying to connect more and more and more with like my why as to like why I hunt you know what drives me and that's going to be a big focus this year 
Um, you know, if somebody kills a big buck, um, you know, I want to be elated for them, uh, you know, on my own farm. I want to be able to really enjoy it and not go, oh, man, I think that son of a gun was a three-and-a-half-year-old, you know, and, it, and just really kind of step back. And I really want to take this year to figure out my why because, you know, as I get older, it's harder to find time to hunt. Um, and I don't want to spend it worrying every minute. So that's a big personal goal for me. But from a habitat perspective, add a little bit more food, um, run some arrows, do some does for sure, and, uh, you know, continue to observe very down to the smallest detail that we can to, you know, see what the deer levels look like and, you know, how, what are the cameras saying and, and things like that. And just have a better idea of um, the life on the farm, you know, whether I'm there or not, you know, the wildlife on the farm uh, versus just like in the past, you know, it was kind of like, all right, we're going hunting, you know, type of thing. So just be kind of more involved with uh, everything that's happening and really what the uh, carrying capacity is that of the farm and things like that. Awesome. How about you, Jared? Yeah, I have a, a couple things. I, I'm i going to get my kids out there uh, a bunch more this year. Nice. I'm going to shoot two or three does. I'm talking like October 1st, 2nd, 3rd. Because <laughs> my dumbass waited till way too late this year and then the buck I shot with Corey was infected and then I shot a doe so we had like one doe worth of meat and I feel like I go through these through these you know dips and and valleys if you will I'll shoot I'll have a bunch of meat one year and then I'll be like man I could have used another deer and a bunch of meat so I'm I'm back to the bunch of meat year and um always an overreaction every year right for sure, for sure, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer them dead. I have a a bunch of does out there. Same thing you guys are all saying. I have come fall, there my food plots are grazed down, and there are does everywhere, um, which helps bring in some bucks. But I'm gonna hammer a few of the big big old ones. Um, I'm going to manage that clover field that I let go a little bit better, and uh, kill some grasses in there, and, and kind of measure how that how that does this year. And then the, the main, the biggest change would be I, I pulled the trigger on my forestry contract with a, with a logger. So nice. I had a, a private forester out last year. We got a bid. It was like nothing. Had another bid this year. Um, he's the only guy that bid again and he bid double the price, which is still nothing. And, uh, but at least he's going to go out there and do it. He's going to get it done. And I'm going to really eliminate a lot of mature canopy on my ground, um, which I wish I would have done three years ago. So that's, that's the biggest change. I hope it doesn't impact the hunting too bad, but at the same time, uh, it's a sacrifice I need to make for the greater good. There's no question. So just increasing cover is pretty much my point there. You know, so. Those are kind of the, the main things, I think. Very cool. Well, boys, I think we've had a great conversation here. I'm going to hit the uh, end record button. Anything else from you boys you want to say before we we end this? Just thank you. I mean, I hope uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I had a lot of fun talking about uh, a lot of different topics and um 
I hope my tone was well received because I definitely didn't want to discourage people. But uh, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having, yeah, thanks for having us on, man. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys, and uh, I will definitely be keeping you up to date. Maybe I'll try and get some videos of the uh, soybean planting and some buckwheat planting and stuff like that. And for sure. Try and make this a learning experience for everybody, and I will definitely be yeah. putting exclusion cages out there for for Al. You know. Yeah. So that would be fun. Uh, looking forward to uh, continue discussing this with y'all. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope everybody's. Being safe and healthy out there. There's a lot going on in our country right now. But uh, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody that's being affected by this. And hopefully we're going to get moving forward here and uh, getting back to the new normal, whatever that's going to be. And uh, like Sam was talking about before we recorded, he's been supporting our sponsors, spending probably too much money than, than he should be. But we, appre- to work, boys. <laughs> we, we appreciate that. And, and, uh, all of our listeners out there, you guys have been awesome supporting our sponsors, and, and we can't thank all our sponsors enough that, that help us out here. And just uh, give them a call, and, you know, we'll keep this thing rolling and keep bringing you guys as much content as we can. Check out the YouTube channel. We've got a lot going on there now. We're I think we're getting at least two videos a week up there and uh, having a blast doing it. So appreciate everybody out there listening and following and subscribing and, Thank you all. I don't know how I could top that one, Brian. Nice job. I uh, I would agree. All of our our sponsors are, are small businesses, you know, trying to trying to function throughout this whole pandemic, and uh, we appreciate all the support from from the listeners. You guys coming back every week, the reviews you're leaving, the hats you're buying. I mean, we love you guys. Thank you so much for doing this, and we will be back soon with another episode. Uh, stay tuned. Thank you, Al and Sam and Brian, all for coming on. It was another fun episode chatting with you guys regarding all things spring habitat and uh, our goals here for 2020. So I'd like to thank the listeners again for coming on. Uh, please leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast app, whether it's your podcast app on your Apple phone, Spotify, Stitcher, Facebook. We, uh, we really love the reviews. Thank you so much, and we send out free decals to those who leave them. Just hit me up on, on Facebook or somewhere if, uh, if you leave me a review so I can get to you. And uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors and partners. We have Packer Max Cultipackers, Killer Food Plots, HuntWise App, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Habitat Hook, Stony Creek Realty, and Morse Nursery. Guys, we will be back with... Uh, a turkey habitat episode coming up. That's going to be awesome. Also, we're going to look into talking about some pollinators. So we've got some cool, different stuff coming to you this spring. Really hope you stay safe out there and, and you know, have fun working on your property and just, you know, becoming a better habitat manager. We will be back soon with more content for you. Take care.
not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.